Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. Happy Friday. I hope your week has been going well. It's hard to believe that it's already the middle of July. I start school in a month from today when this episode airs. So that's insane. Second year of law school coming up. Exciting stuff. Before we dive into the episode, I just want to ask a favor. If you're listening on a platform that has a rating system, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anything like that, if you could leave a five-star review if you like the podcast, it would mean a lot to me, and it also helps the podcast grow and helps it helps other people discover it. So if you enjoy the podcast, if you've enjoyed listening so far, please leave a five-star review. I would greatly appreciate it. I said last week I was going to do the UK Boris Johnson scandal, and I was looking into it, but I'm going to wait to do it until the elections over there are finalized, which is a big thing I've been seeing in the news. Just to kind of bleed into that section, there has been a lot going on with that. I also have seen, I'm blanking on what country this happened in, but a bunch of citizens stormed, I believe their prime minister's mansion, house grounds area. So there is a lot of movement in the world in different countries, different cities of leadership change happening. So that is what I am waiting for for the UK scandal, but it's interesting to see it in different parts of the world as well. So this week, since I am not doing the UK Boris Johnson scandal, I wanted to go a little bit true crime, but this one has a little bit of scandal, but mainly true crime. This is the murder of James Jordan, Michael Jordan's father. The sources I used for this episode, I used an article by Paul Miera from BET, an article by Sam Quinn for CBS Sports, an article by Stacey St. Clair and Chad Yoder for the Chicago Tribune, an article by Robert Thomas for the New York Times, a one Wikipedia page, an article by Dan Woik for the LA Times, and then an article by Dan Wiederer for the Chicago Tribune. So let's dive right in. If you aren't a fan of basketball, or even if you aren't a sports fan, chances are you've still probably heard of the name Michael Jordan. And on the off chances that you haven't, perhaps you've heard of the Air Jordans, the famous shoes from Nike. Michael Jordan is regarded as one of the best basketball players of all time, and probably is one of the most well-known. One big reason we all know Michael Jordan's name is his father, James R. Jordan. James played a huge role in inspiring Michael to get into basketball. Michael started playing basketball in 1979, but was unfortunately cut from the varsity team. Two years later, he accepted a scholarship at the University of North Carolina and was also selected as a McDonald's All-American. In 1984, he was selected by the Chicago Bulls, and in 1985 was selected Rookie of the Year. Also in 1985, the Air Jordan 1s were released. 
So his career is starting to take off. He's growing in success. He's becoming this huge basketball star. And then in 1988, he was selected as the NBA's MVP, beating out Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. While Michael was rising to fame, his dad was always there by his side supporting him, and Michael also said that his father helped keep him grounded as he was growing in his success. He always referred to his father as Pops. While Michael's father likely helped Michael stay grounded, getting famous the way Michael did with a lot of just fans and press and money, it can often lead to some bad habits, and for Michael, that habit was gambling. Michael claimed to not have a gambling problem, but rather, quote, a competition problem, end quote. He would bet on just about anything, golf, cards, random competitions with teammates, and even competitions with security guards. If there could be a bet involved, he was there. His gambling really came in front of the public eye in 1993 when gambler and suspected drug dealer James Buhler was sentenced to nine years for money laundering and conspiracy. Michael was forced to testify over a $57,000 check that he had written Buhler, and at first he told the government that it was a business loan, but then later admitted on the stand that it was a gambling debt from the golf course. To add to this public attention, in a book written by one of Michael's constant golf partners, the author claimed that Michael owed him $1.25 million from golf bets, but Michael of course quickly denied the claims. It was later revealed that Michael settled this for $300,000. This pattern is becoming more and more in the public eye, and on top of all of this, this gambling that was with this author of the book, a lot of this took place in Hilton Head, South Carolina, where it was technically illegal to gamble. Michael was never charged, and it only would have been a misdemeanor, but breaking the law wasn't a good look, even though he wasn't charged. This kind of picture-perfect image of who Michael Jordan was, the gambling, the fact that what the gambling he was doing was illegal wasn't a great look. So a lot of this stuff comes out in the early 90s, 91, 92, 93, and that is background for the main part of this episode. While all of this was happening in 1993, this of course wasn't great for Michael, but what else happened in 1993 was going to change Michael's world for the worse. On July 22nd, 1993, James Jordan, again Michael Jordan's father, attended the funeral of a former co-worker in Wilmington, North Carolina. Shortly after midnight of that day, so now it's early morning July 23rd, James left a friend's house to go from Wilmington and headed back home towards Charlotte on U.S. Highway 74. Right before 2 a.m. that same morning, James pulled off Highway 74 in Robeson County, and this was one of the last things that James would do in his life. Again, this is happening on July 23rd, but it wouldn't be until August 12th, about two weeks later, actually closer to about three weeks later, when James's family would file a missing persons report. The main reason for filing the missing persons report was because James's family had just learned that a car was found stripped in a rural wooded area near Fayetteville. 
The car was a red Lexus SC400, but the plates had been taken and there was nothing found inside the car to identify who the car belonged to. It was eventually determined to be registered to James through the uh, vehicle identification number. According to the friends that James had gone to see for the funeral and like his first co-worker, they had said that James was known to go off on his own without letting anybody know. And there's still a, a little bit of questioning about why or how James Jordan could be missing for three weeks and seemingly his family didn't notice or wasn't concerned. This was back in the early 90s, so it's not like cell phones were really a thing or not like they were today, but three weeks going without seeing someone, and yes, he's an adult, but that's a long time. So still to this day, there's a lot of questions about why for three weeks this person was missing and no one reported him missing until after the car was found, but there's really no answers for that other than he was apparently known to just wander off on his own and not tell anybody, so that's that. So he apparently had this pattern, and then as a reminder, this missing persons report was filed on August 12th. Unfortunately, little did James's family know that James's body had already been found. James's body had been found on August 3rd in a creek near McColl, South Carolina, but the body was listed as a John Doe. On August 7th, James's body was cremated by a South Carolina coroner. The day after the missing persons report was filed on August 13th, James's body was identified through dental records, and it would only be two more days until two individuals were arrested and charged with his murder. Teenagers Daniel Green and Larry DeMary. Let's go back to the night James disappeared, July 23rd, early in the morning. To those who know the case, this is generally what people remember. James pulled over to take a nap. He was shot while he slept during a robbery gone wrong. And that is correct on a very broad scale but there's a lot more to it, but first let's talk about how these people got caught. They got caught for a reason that many criminals get caught. Stupidity. After James's body had been disposed of, the boys now had the car. And guess what was in that car? A car phone. Who made lots and lots of calls on that car phone? Daniel Green and Larry DeMary. At 7.05 a.m. on July 23rd, so just hours after this altercation had gone down and the body had been disposed of, there was a call made to a sex hotline. At 10.36 a.m., the phone is used to call Hubert Larry Deese, who is the biological son of the Robeson County Sheriff. Hmm. Tuck that away for later. At 10.47 a.m., the phone is used to call Green's half-brother. Over the next few days, there are various calls made to relatives and friends of both Daniel and Larry, which eventually help implicate the teens in the murder. And then on July 26th, the two teens dump the car and the car is stripped. Eventually, when the teens are arrested, they both faced lots of evidence that connected them to James's disappearance, 
theft and the disposal of his body. Both of them were sentenced to life in prison. What's highly contested, and still is today, is who actually killed James and who else could have been involved. Daniel Green, one of the boys convicted who is now a man in prison, says that he didn't shoot James and that he wasn't even present when James was shot and killed. Let's dive into why this case isn't as open and shut as it may seem. Or, at least to some people, it's not as open and shut as it may seem. And then, before I go further, as a disclaimer, one of the articles which I cited, but in this article, I believe it was from the Chicago Tribune, it was an interview with Daniel, and Larry, the other person who was arrested for this crime, was reached out to. He did not contribute to the article. Larry's, um, Larry's attorney did not contribute to the article, so... These are Daniel's claims, but they seem to have some merit, so let's talk about them. The night before the murder, it was a pretty average evening. Daniel said that he was with Larry and others at a cookout at his godmother's house. Daniel said that Larry then left around 1.30am, but that he stuck around to hang back with a girl. Larry then apparently came back shortly before dawn and seemed just shaken beside himself, nothing like Daniel had seen before. Daniel says that Larry then told him that he was in an altercation with a man and that he had shot the man. Daniel said that Larry asked for his help to cover up the murder and that he had to make a choice between turning on a longtime life friend or helping cover up a murder. Not long after this alleged conversation, James's body was dumped. So Daniel was like, okay, I'll help you and Daniel has admitted to this. When the two boys were eventually caught and convicted, there were some interesting things that stood out. There was little physical evidence showing where, when, and how the murder happened, yet the authorities were sure of everything that they claimed. Further, all of these events relied on the testimony of Larry, and Larry maintained that James was shot at close range in the chest in the driver's seat of the car, and that Daniel shot him. Looking at the coroner report of James, it's interesting because the coroner reported showing no exit wound to James's body, there was no definitive blood found in the car, and there was no gunshot residue found inside the car. So if James was shot at close range or gun to the chest shot in his car, you would expect to find blood, you would expect to find gunshot residue, all of that stuff. Nope, not there. It's also interesting because at the time the murder was confirmed, there were reports from the authorities announcing that they believed the murder did not take place inside the car, which later at trial was something that the prosecution contradicted and said that the murder did happen in the car. So already off the bat, where did this murder happen? Did it happen in the car? Did it happen outside of the car? Was the car the catalyst for the murder, no one can confirm either way. At the trial, there was expert testimony presented that there was, quote, a pretty good indication of blood, end quote, in the car, but that the blood was only in the back crevice of the passenger seat, not the driver's seat. And if we're going with the theory that James pulled over to take a nap in his car, why would he have gone over to the passenger seat? Why wouldn't you just stay in the driver's seat? And then 
if there's blood in the passenger seat in a crevice, why is there not blood in the driver's seat where presumably James would have been napping? Despite this anomaly and irregularity to many, the prosecutor wasn't swayed and said, quote, There was a lot of blood found inside Mr. Jordan. He bled internally, so the fact that we couldn't confirm there was blood in the car is of little consequence, really. That was just one piece of the puzzle in a multifaceted case. End quote. Now, I am no forensic expert, I am no scientist, but to me, if you are going to be shot, even if the bullet doesn't go through you, you're gonna bleed. And to prove this, I want to tell you a brief story of what happened to me this week. I was washing a mug, or I was washing a cup, and in the sink was a mug, and the cup was soapy, and I dropped the cup just because it slipped from my hand, and the mug exploded, and a piece of ceramic mug flew up and landed in the crevice of my finger, and it was just the tiniest little piece, and it did not go all the way through, like, it didn't sever my finger, but it punctured my finger, and it was stuck there. And I kind of looked at it for a second, because it, it was one of those things where, like, you know it's going to hurt, but it hasn't hit yet, so then it started to hurt, and lo and behold, even though the ceramic little piece was still in my finger, blood started to appear. Obviously, a piece of ceramic is not a bullet. But it's kind of a similar analogy. Something flew at my finger, got landed in there, it stuck there, and I bled. If you get shot in the chest at close range, regardless of whether the bullet goes through the other side, you're going to bleed. So to me, that part is also weird. Why is there little to no blood if you are saying he was murdered in the car? The only thing I can maybe think is if he was murdered with the door open and after they shot him, they like threw him out of the car. But again, that also doesn't make sense because then why were the why would there be blood in the passenger seat of the car? I don't know. Another interesting part of the case is the shirt that James was wearing. And in case you're wondering, he was wearing a collared knit Grand Slam pullover. On the official autopsy report, it was reported that James died from a single gunshot wound to the right chest, which right, like right where the heart is, and that's consistent with the story. The story is single gunshot wound to the chest, kind of by the heart, right in the heart, one shot, one bullet, close range, okay. Simple enough, right? No, because the autopsy states, quote, there is no hole in the shirt at that point. Directly below that location in the lower abdominal region are three holes that would line up with the hole in the chest if the shirt were pulled up approximately one foot. End quote. So, not only is there a lack of blood in the car, but now we have the autopsy report saying there's not a bullet hole where there should be a bullet hole, and there is a hole in the shirt but it's a foot below where it should be, and there are three holes instead of one hole. Again, what? This makes no sense. 
That fact itself is weird, but it directly conflicts with testimony from an agent of the State Bureau of Investigations when they said that there was a single hole in the upper right chest area of the shirt and that there was evidence of burned gunpowder around the hole. So the autopsy report says there's no hole. An agent on the stand says there is a hole. And you might be thinking to yourself, how can that be? Well, there's a reason, and it's something called chain of custody. The chain of custody of this shirt was not handled properly. After the autopsy, again, where the shirt had no hole, the shirt was then given to an agent of the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. It was then given to an employee of a company that provided services for funeral homes where it was then given to a superior. After it was given to that superior, it was then said by that superior that they buried, quote, the pullover in a bag outside the company's warehouse because of its overpowering stench, end quote. And in case you are thinking to yourself, what? Yes, I will say it again. The, in the chain of custody of evidence, this shirt, which went to a company that handled funeral home services was buried in a bag in the ground outside because of the stench. A piece of a murder case was buried in the ground. You'll never guess, but after the shirt was dug out of the ground and then transported to North Carolina State Bureau of Investigations, that's when the bullet hole in the chest was found, or supposedly found. Not at the autopsy, when there was no intervention, no weird things that could have happened. It was after this crazy, bizarre chain of custody being buried in the ground because it smelled bad and then transferred to another state that this bullet hole and gunpowder residue happened. I hope you remembered the suspicious little thing I told you to hold on to, a call to Hubert Larry Deese, the son of Robeson County Sheriff, whose office oversaw James's murder investigation. And again, this call to um, Deese, it was made from the car phone in James's phone in James's car by one of the two boys, supposedly. But what's interesting is that the jurors never heard about this call at the trial. Let's talk a little bit about Deese. Deese was a co-worker of Larry, and their workplace was less than a mile from where James's body was discovered. Deese was a known drug trafficker who was arrested in February of 1994 and, quote, linked to a Colombian cocaine pipeline that had connections in New York and Lumberton, North Carolina. End quote. He was sentenced to 10 years for that charge. There is no documentation that shows that authorities ever formally questioned Deese. Doesn't that seem like a huge oversight when the number belonged to a known drug dealer who was the son of the sheriff and an apparent friend of the lead detective on the case? To me, that screams huge, huge cover-up, but despite it seeming suspicious to many, state officials, law enforcement officers are quick to rule it out, 
Part of it is saying that Deese and his father, who was the sheriff, weren't on good terms. They didn't have a good father-son relationship. And it is also said that the investigation was not compromised to protect Deese. Quote, that is a line I would never cross and have never crossed. End quote. If you think it seems suspicious, Daniel thinks it's suspicious as well. As well, Daniel claims that Larry was working at the time for Deese as a drug mule. Even though this is suspicious to many people, any theories of Deese being involved with the killing is quickly rejected by the state, and they call it quote a theory completely unsubstantiated from evidence at trial or even any information submitted to this court. End quote. And they kind of have a point. The district attorney who prosecuted Daniel back in 1996 says that there was no confirmation the call was answered, it can't be proved who placed the call, and there is no evidence showing that Deese and Larry had any subsequent contact after this supposed connection with the killing. The significance is also doubted by the state and prosecutors because merely showing that Larry knew Deese and the fact that Deese was a high-level drug dealer doesn't mean that there is a connection to James's murder. Yes, it looks suspicious. Yes, some people would just say it's more than a coincidence. But just because someone's a drug dealer and you know someone who murdered someone doesn't mean that drug dealer is involved in the murder. And so that's kind of what the state and prosecution are saying. And I can see it from that side, but the fact that the jurors didn't hear the call, that's weird to me. A lawyer for Deese points out that if Deese did have ties to the murder, then why would there have been a nine-hour gap from the murder time to the phone call? Deese's lawyer, he hypothesizes that the call was made because the boys knew that Deese was a high-level drug dealer, and they were calling to see if he knew anyone that would want to or if he would want to purchase the car now that it was potentially going to incriminate them in the murder. So Deese's lawyer is like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird that they called him, but they probably just called him to see if he knew anyone to buy the car. And to me, that also makes sense, which is so frustrating because there's a lot of dispute about various things, and there are so many explanations that make pretty decent sense. As a reminder, back at the time of the trial, the jurors never heard about this call to Deese. And then, importantly, recently, quote, in an affidavit signed last year, the judge in the case, Gregory Weeks, said that if he had known that Deese was Stone's biological son, and Stone was the sheriff, and worked with Demiri as well as of Deese's role in drug trafficking, he would have allowed the call into evidence. Green's attorneys asserted that the prosecutors knew all of this, but failed to disclose that to the judge, end quote. So... Daniel's new legal team, which I'll talk about in a little bit, is basically like prosecutorial misconduct here. This prosecutor was trying to bury evidence, was hiding stuff from the judge, and this call could have made a huge difference. Deese's lawyer thinks that Daniel has a good chance to fight his charges and that he supports him fighting that, but that he is not in support of his client, Deese, being blamed for it. The district attorney named Johnson Britt says that it was just that the two teens were put away for the murder. Quote, 
I was dealing with two kids who were on a crime spree, and that culminated in the death of Mr. Jordan, and each crime they committed together became increasingly more violent. End quote. Britt, he has a point. The two boys had been partners in at least two other armed robberies that summer, and Daniel was convicted of those at the same time as the murderer. And then I also read somewhere that apparently Daniel had been involved in a violent crime where he hit someone over the head and severely injured them. Britt also points out, and this is pretty damning for Daniel, that Daniel wore James's jewelry in a home video that he made the day after the murder, quote, wrapping and seemingly flaunting the spoils of the crime, end quote. Britt goes on to say, quote, he was a bad guy. This was somebody who had no regard for what he did to people. I'm not saying people can't change, but Daniel Green, in the day, was a really bad person. End quote. At the trial, and I think I mentioned this before, but at the trial, it was mainly Larry who testified his version of what happened. And he testified that he wanted to do a robbery, but that Daniel wanted to do more than that. He wanted more than money. He wanted the car. The robbery, the robbery went wrong, and apparently Daniel shot James. Larry testified, quote, We both stood there and watched the man die. I asked Daniel why did he do it, and he just said, Hurry up and let's get him moved. End quote. After the trial, there was a detailed questionnaire that was filled out by the jurors, and jurors, quote, acknowledged that they did not find beyond a reasonable doubt that Green killed or attempted to kill or intended to kill James Jordan, end quote. So even the jurors, even though they convicted these two teens to life in prison, the jurors were like, we're not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that Daniel Green was the person who killed, attempted to kill, or intended to kill him. So even the jurors are like, we don't know what to think. Today and more recently, Daniel said in various interviews in 2018 that he would prove that he didn't kill James. And in December of 2021, just seven, eight months ago, he was starting to see signs of victory. The North Carolina Court of Appeals, quote, reversed a trial court judge's decision to deny a hearing on the evidence his attorneys will clear his name, end quote. On Green's side, on Daniel Green's side, is the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence. They're citing what we talked about, the scarce blood evidence, the call to the sheriff's drug dealer's son, and the hole in the shirt that didn't exist and then all of a sudden did apparently exist after this huge mess of chain of custody. His recent victory in December doesn't mean that he will get a trial, but it means that he can get a trial to maybe clear his name. Kind of turning back to the Jordan family, the death of Michael's father was obviously heartbreaking for him and his family. 52 days after his father's funeral, he said goodbye to basketball when he retired from the NBA. He said at a news conference, quote, the most positive thing I can take from my father not being here with me today is that he saw my last basketball game. And that means a lot. End quote. He retired from the NBA, and then he went to play for the Chicago White Sox for a while, then he returned to the Chicago Bulls for a few years. He then retired and then came out of retirement a third time to play for the Wizards and played for about two years before he played his last NBA game on April 16th, 2003. 
And then to wrap it up, from what I could find, Larry was still in prison. He was granted parole, but then that privilege was revoked, so he is still in prison. And despite Daniel's legal battles and his recent victory, Daniel Green is also still in prison. Michael Jordan hasn't commented too much publicly, or the Jordan family really hasn't commented too much about his father's death, about the murder, about really anything to do with it. Michael Jordan in an Oprah interview said that he would not want to know the reasoning if he had the chance from the two boys, men now in prison, because he said it would probably just seem like a stupid reason and it probably wouldn't provide much comfort. But there really are still a lot of unanswered questions as to what happened that night, where did things happen, how did things happen, and who was potentially there. And there is convictions, there are people serving a sentence in jail, but it kind of seems like one of them has a decent chance of potentially clearing their name for at least the murder charge. Of course, disposing of a body, helping strip a car, robbery, that's all horrible, but that is something different from murder. And with that, that concludes the murder of James Jordan, Michael Jordan's father. I kind of said my closing thoughts already, but I just really hope there is resolution to this case. And it will be like, yes, this is definitively what happened, but that usually doesn't happen in cases like these. If you've listened to the episode of The Boys on the Tracks, that case is insane. And this case kind of reminds me of it. There's maybe a cover-up, maybe not, maybe someone else was involved. I'll be interested to see how Daniel Green's legal battles go to see if he's successful on clearing his name for a murder charge. But only time will tell what happens with that. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm going to post photos on social media, on Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal101Pod, on Facebook, search Scandal101Podcast, you'll find us there. The website is Scandal101Podcast.podbean.com, and then an email if you want to send in a topic recommendation or your personal scandal. I said a couple episodes ago that I wasn't going to read them every episode, but if there's more of like a heavier episode, I'm going to sprinkle them in there. So send those to scandal101podcast at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy your weekend. I hope you have a great whatever time you're listening. And thanks so much for tuning in. This has been episode 60 of Scandal 101.